0: Doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Danny Sachsenberg, co-founder and CEO of EmergeML.
1: People are spending a lot of time focusing on interesting problems and not so much on valuable problems. The real big idea is we genuinely believe that that the, the solutions to the world's biggest problems are in data. And there aren't enough people tackling that properly what gets people excited is that you identify a problem that's hurting their business or an opportunity and you develop a solution that takes advantage of that and what we're finding is that we're able to get machines to do things that far exceed what uh, humans can do but where humans become much more useful is where we can get them to be strategic in terms of working out where they would like the machines to be deployed we're getting businesses starting to ask more of the right questions and identify the bottlenecks in the business and focus on that. I think ultimately it boils down to what can you do to serve the public better. And the more value you add to, them, to more people, the better your business will do. This is Danny.
0: He started his career as an actuary at Deloitte and then started to immerse himself in the world of machine learning and AI. He was part of the team at gemstep.com to build the first and leading robo-advisor for the financial services industry. In 2012 he founded eMERGE, together with his co-founder Lawrence Rao, And eMERGE helps insurance companies to make money from insurance operations by making them super efficient. To accomplish this, eMERGE works in partnerships with the world's largest and most trusted consulting companies, software giants, and directly with corporates to develop constantly learning operational solutions to valuable and consequential problems. He refers to himself as passionate about thinking differently and unlocking potential. In his words, I'm always looking for more problems. And this triggered me, hence I invited Danny to my podcast. We explore what's required for AI and machine learning to reach their full potential in solutions. And I can tell you, data is just part of that puzzle. We review the difference in impact between solutions that improve efficiency and solutions that improve experience. And last but not least, we will address how the outcomes of AI will reveal new insights, help transform thinking inside organizations and in turn, inspire the creation of completely new processes and procedures. By listening to this interview, we will learn three things. Firstly, that to solve the world's biggest problems and to build the most impactful solutions for the future, we need to develop multidisciplinary people who blend the expertise in AI with their expertise in business. Secondly, why it's critical to view your customers as partners and not as clients in order to create meaningful and lasting impact. And thirdly, how by building solutions that go beyond just insight but instead also help to solve the problem by changing behavior you can grow value exponentially well to get the podcast going and start with with the story can you introduce yourself and give a little background about yeah what you've been doing so far and and what drives you in the day-to-day business
1: okay perfect so uh, i mean the Professionally, I'm an actuary, So, but I realized very soon after qualifying that I have career ADD. So there was no possibility of me staying in an actuary forever. And so in 2002, I left being a life actuary at Deloitte. And went out exploring, and I was—I had real, really had no particular agenda as for what I was looking out for. But I was asked quite early to build a credit scorecard for a financial institution. I had never done it before, but it, that's exactly the kind of project that I liked. I love to be learning, so if they and I love to be doing stuff that I've never done before. So I came across machine learning back then, researching from first principles, and although we still build credit scorecards, it was love at first sight because for somebody with career ADD like me, machine learning was an absolute godsend. The opportunity to work in a range of different fields, any field that has data, you can actually walk in and have the machine add value and make a positive impact. So I became really just obsessive about machine learning back then. And over the years, real I mean, it was instantly obvious to me that we had the opportunity to work in a range of different fields. So Being an actuary, we started off uh, back in 2002 working with insurers just because I knew people at insurance companies and they knew me. But there were a few logical, progressive steps. So moving into banking, uh, then moving into telcos, uh, health and medical research were quite big and have been quite big areas of interest for us. And so a lot of that was relatively informal because back then, Very few people were actually familiar with artificial intelligence. And so it was actually a nice time to be in the field just because people had very low expectations of what AI was meant to be able to achieve. So it was a relatively friendly environment where people were willing to experiment and were willing to let you take a chance and learn and make mistakes. And so it was a very hospitable environment to actually be in the field at the time. Later on, I did that on my own for a while, but then later on, I was joined by my co-founder of Emerge, uh, Lawrence Rao, and he's a process engineer by profession. And one of the things that I discovered was that AI is wonderful, but the, the actual value to clients is never actually realized unless you have proper implementation and operationalization, because the output of AI is really just information. And having information doesn't do anything unless you actually action it. So uh, that was an area where I was particularly weak, but where my partner Lawrence is particularly strong. So it was a very good uh, good partnership, and yeah. so we've we've developed both sides of the business over the last uh, over the last couple of years, so that we've got very strong algorithm development, but also very strong implementation. Cool. and operationalization and then the other thing that we've that we've done quite nicely i think is we've spent a lot of time educating because the the one thing that we found is that people still and i think justifiably have a distrust of machine learning just because so many people try it and don't see value out of it and so we've spent a lot of time working out first of all what needs to be done in order for clients to get real value out of it and also spent a lot of time educating. So we speak at a lot of conferences. We, we educate via our partners. So we have quite a few uh, nice strategic partners and we educate them and then we also educate through them. So we, we, we believe that a big part of the, of the process of getting value from AI is actually just letting people become aware of what's possible and how to do it right. Yeah. So, so
0: yeah. I want to kind of jump into a number of things here, and I I agree with you. And that's also came to my realization yesterday when I was looking at one of the keynotes from Sapphire from SAP, where I think it was a quote from their CEO uh, Bill McDermott, who spoke to uh, Kasparov, the the chess player. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kasparov made made a point, indeed, like what you're saying as well, that AI in itself. Or inside or, or um, you well know, the kind of the benefit from a machine is actually useless if you don't connect it to to a process, so mm-hmm. uh, a weak person with good good, good intelligence around it uh, is is less worth than a strong person well I mean, i'm going kind of completely get it wrong here but at the end, the combination of insight and process uh, is is where the value is created so
1: um
0: uh, that's good that you pick, and- pick, pick up on that. I mean, I spoke
1: at a conference in New York in December, and there was another speaker uh, who put up a slide saying that 90% of AI projects in the financial services industry had had a negative return on investment. And I fully, fully believe that part of it, a major shortcoming is what we've just spoken about, which is the the failure of process and operationalization. There's another major one which we've we've picked up on, and that is that people are spending a lot of time focusing on interesting problems and not so much on valuable problems. And and that's also a big problem. And I think a lot of it stems from a disconnect. What I mean by that is that you'll have people who are experts in the AI, but often aren't experts in business. And so they might, of their own initiative, might suggest a problem which if actually uh, sorted out, won't be very valuable. But on the other side, you have business people who unfortunately at the moment have a great sense of business, but don't necessarily have the awareness of what AI is capable of. And so I think you have these people talking past each other. And so to some extent, people have been speaking about getting around this by having multidisciplinary teams. But I don't think that fully addresses the problem because having people with different disciplines in the in the same room, still doesn't stop them talking past each other. What you actually need to develop is multidisciplinary people, where they have the full business awareness plus the AI awareness in one person's head at the same time, so that yeah. there, there's no failure of the imagination for what's possible. I agree. So going back to, to when you start, when did you start emerge ML? so we, it was it kind of functioned informally all the way back in two thousand and two, but it was formally incorporated in two thousand and twelve
0: okay, so that it took ten years to make it formal <laughs>
1: yes, yeah,
0: okay, so what is the big idea behind emerging mail so how does your company what is the, product, the, the the product that you create and
1: how does it add value so in terms of the big idea before I get to the product edge the, the real big idea is we genuinely believe that the that the, the solutions to the world's biggest problems are in data and there aren't enough people tackling that properly. So we've got just huge amounts of data I'm sure you've heard a statistic that says something along the lines of half of the data in the world at the moment was collected in the previous 18 months. That's actually a, a three-year-old statistic. It's actually closer to 90% of data in the world was collected in the previous 18 months. And so we, we, we've got an explosion of data. We know that there's gold in, in them hills, as they say. There's, there's tremendous value over there. True. And we're very excited about the opportunity to unlock that potential. That really get, gets us excited. And so the, the, I think the thing that uh, we've, we've got a bunch of our own proprietary methodologies, but I think a, a lot of people do. I think a, part of, a, a big part of what we do is we do have multidisciplinary people. I think that makes a big difference. And so we both, both my co-founder and I have spent a lot of time both in the AI field as well as in actual business. So I think Mm -hmm. we're making a big focus on what I spoke about before in, in terms of identifying valuable problems as opposed to interesting ones and then solving them and implementing them. So there's a lot of are we the best at AI in the world? I'm almost certain that we're not. But the, I think the thing that we do do well is we have the entire ecosystem. So what I mean by that is that we've got a, we've got good business awareness, we've got good operationalization, we've got good AI, and we have great partners. So uh, I think that's that's the key thing. AI on its own will not succeed, and you need to bring yeah. a very comprehensive ecosystem to the party. So I didn't mention it before, but we do have a very vast system of partners that help us bring that to that ecosystem to the party. So we currently work together with Deloitte in, in Africa, where we bring the AI expertise, but then we also partner with them so that they can bring their consulting expertise, their deployment expertise. We have a similar relationship with PwC in the UK, and then we also have a similar relationship with Microsoft, yeah. where bringing all of these together, the the know-how about business, the know-how about deployment, the know-how about cloud computing, the know-how about the AI, all of that and coupled with, I I think uh, uh, my partner hates it when I say this, but I think possibly one of our biggest achievements is that we've made more mistakes than other people so far just because we've been in the game for so long. So I think we have a lot of experience and we have a lot of that multi, we have the ecosystem and we have a lot of multidisciplinary people. So but that's that's... that's, that's,
0: uh... That's absolutely key. But, but what is the, um, so look at Emerge ML. What is the product that you deliver or what is the platform? Or does it always start with, with an ID and then it's like building it from there?
1: so the i mean so from the point of view of our ai itself we've spent a lot of time developing our software so we we're extremely quick uh, at developing uh, from the point that we get our data ingesting it uh, doing feature engineering developing customized and bespoke ai algorithms that solve a very specific problem we're very quick at that but the so that is part of what we do but the 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 key thing about this is actually, as I mentioned, just being able to do the the whole value system. The our actual service is what we end up doing. We we actually trying to de-emphasize the AI to a point because people don't really understand it, and I think to a large extent it actually drives people away. It really people don't care about your accuracy. They don't care about your root mean square error or your Gini coefficient or your ROC curve. That really doesn't doesn't get people excited. What gets people excited is that you identify a problem that's hurting their business or an opportunity and you develop a solution that takes advantage of that. So what we focus on is developing a valuable solution. And so the in essence, what the product boils down to is what we would call a customized software as a service offering. So we would work together with the client to identify the problem, collect the data, build an AI solution for it and deploy and operationalize it. And then allow them to carry on using it, uh, license the software to them, which we developed for them, and then make sure that it continues to deliver value. And I think that's also something uh, that's worth emphasizing. We actually don't like referring to clients as clients because we're not a consultancy firm because we've always been quite opposed to consulting because there's always an inherent conflict of interest in that because as a consultant, my job is to sell you as many hours as I can um, and give you just enough value to keep you interested, but not so much value that you can get rid of us. Whereas as a, as, as a client, you have exactly the opposite um, incentives. Whereas we prefer to view our clients as partners where we want to make sure we genuine, it's not just marketing. We genuinely, genuinely want to make sure that our clients end up, end up better off and far better off for the interaction, so we don't have any contracts we don't have any long term agreements as long as the models generating value, the client continues to use it. If it stops generating value or there's a change in the business, they just turn the model off and that's the end of it. It's got to make sense financially to everyone. And we want to make sure that everybody benefits from it. There are enough problems, valuable problems out there that we don't need to lock people into unsustainable and unprofitable situations. So we really uh, don't want to lock people into these types of arrangements and we want them to benefit from it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can agree. And that also is, of course, the, the foundation of any company. And if you don't add value, mm-hmm. you're not going to last long. So talking about the solutions that you are creating, because what I believe is that you are you're going into a certain situation, you identify particular problems that is, that is valuable solving, and then mm-hmm. you create a solution for that. So can you Correct. give an example of... Something you've done in either the uh,
1: the insurance industry, or the or the banking industry, or the retail industry. Sure. I mean, so we, we we've we've done quite a lot, but the, there's some really really exciting ones. But what is I mean, what's interesting? I suppose not so interesting in retrospect, but is that we found that there are basically five or six main applications that are universally valuable to pretty much all of the insurance and uh, banking uh, partners that we have. So yep. on on the one on the one side, of, so and basically you can classify the two the two types of solutions that we bring in terms of solutions that improve efficiency and solutions that improve experience or customer experience. So in terms of efficiency, looking at the uh, entire customer life cycles on the one hand is just being very improving the efficiency of getting new clients so whether it's improving their digital strategy so that they can get more clients with the same spend or if they direct direct marketers being able to again achieve the same number of clients with fewer agents or more clients with the same number of agents cross-sell and upsell all of those the the results are quite dramatic so and, and if you can do that then you can dramatically reduce the cost of acquisition which is very very important in both both bank and insurance, but particularly insurance, yes. where actually a significant part of the payload of a premium goes into just covering those initial expenses. On the flip exactly. side, one of the things that I'm particularly excited about is actually improving retention. So these big clients spend a fortune acquiring clients, but when they stick around, and then just as they start turning profitable, a lot of the, a lot of them churn. So what we do is we we actually build preemptive predictors of lapse. So at the moment, most of the banks insurance companies have a reactive response to churn. So when a, a client or a policyholder cancels their accounts or the or the policy. So at that point, the institution asks them to stay. But by that point, it's normally too late. Whereas what sure. we try to do is get the machine to predict who is going to leave three months in the future or six months in the yeah. future. So that, first of all, the, the, the institution is in a position to try some sort of intervention. They can first work out if they're if they if the client is worth saving some of the some of the some of the insurance cases sometimes the insurer is quite happy to see the back of really bad risks so that's obviously something that they can they can choose whether or not they want to save a particular policyholder but the, assuming that they do you have much more chance saving somebody if you get to them before and what we then do is once we've identified the the list of people who are going to leave and by the way it's 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 spectacularly accurate we just finished building one for uh, for an american insurer which ended up being 99% accurate in terms of who was going to leave 3 months oh. in the future really so it it were, it was spookily accurate i particularly love it because i'm quite a a spontaneous kind of person. So I don't know what I'm doing next week, let alone in three months. And I imagine there are other people like me out there. And so what's exciting to me about this is that for people like me, in many cases, the machine knew that we were going to leave before we knew that we were going to leave. So that that's quite an exciting thing to me. But then the next thing that we do is actually is once we know who's going to leave, we work with the client to develop a range of potential interventions that they might try to save a person. So I might leave because the premium's too high. You might leave because you don't like the service. Whatever the case is, another person might leave because they don't understand their product properly. We yeah. uh, we work with the with the client to develop a range of interventions, and then we get the machine to learn which intervention should be tried on which person who's going to leave that will be most likely to get them to sa- to be saved. And the, the the results are dramatic. So in our most recent one that we deployed in South Africa, we reduced lapses by sixty percent, which is insane. It made a yeah. it made a seven percent increase to the embedded value of their inforce business, and yeah. close to doubled the embedded value of their new business. It was a massive, massive impact. But so that's, those are two of the applications included in that, by the way, would be all the traditional risk assessments. So in insurance, there would be pricing in, in banking, it would be stuff like credit, uh, credit rating, but also included in that is stuff which then lends itself to changing the experience. So for example, screening. So if you get a very big life insurance policy, there's a, there's a good chance that you'll be sent for an extended medical. So yeah. blood tests, a physical exam, which can be quite a disincentive to taking out a policy Whereas what um, what, I mean, I took two years to get a life insurance policy because I'm petrified of needles. And so I only went at eventually at the insistence of my wife. But the truth is, for some people, the machines able not even if it's not a lot of people, but even if uh, but even if it's 20 or 30 percent of applicants, what we do is we've been building for some of the big reinsurers tools that allow them to green light a a certain proportion of the applicants just based on their questionnaire uh, data. And that makes the big difference because now you can apply for insurance and not have to do all of that. So that's a change in experience because the machine was able to assess the risk of that particular person. We also do stuff which is becoming more and more important in terms of financial crimes, so stuff like fraud, both in terms of banking fraud or insurance fraud. That's become a big thing. By the way, that also leads to changes in experience. So Lemonade made a big splash because they managed to set a world record of paying a claim within three seconds of being submitted. And they can't do all of their uh, they can't do all of their claims that fast. They can do a small number of claims that quickly. Where again. For a certain number of claims, the machine is able to assess that the fraud risk on this claim is very, very low, yeah. and you can give that claim an automatic green light. That makes a big difference. It's I don't even uh, live in a country where I can get Lemonade insurance, but if I did, I would love to get Lemonade insurance, not because I hope to claim, but just because it was so cool. So that yeah, type of thing, but, uh, that type of thing, really changes the experience, and it's an example of where AI is changing the way we do stuff, which we've done for hundreds of years. So fundamentally, banking and insurance haven't changed at all. We just do more of it using computers. But this is something which actually changes the experience. You can have claims done in no time. You can actually have valuations of property on property uh, policy done also in close to no time using yeah. AI. And then the last major area of application that we have is, I hate to use the term, I've got to come up with a better term for it, but it really boils down to behavior modification. So what I mean by that is, if you take a look at that churn example, knowing that you're going to leave, I would like to change your behavior and get you to stay. So that's an example of trying to change your behavior. But uh, yeah. at a more fundamental level in insurance, if I'm insuring your life, I would like you to eat healthy food and exercise regularly. Exactly. So what what can I do to get you to become a better risk. I'd like you, if I insure your car, I'd like you to drive more safely and less recklessly. How can I incentivize you to behave in a way which is actually better for both the insurer and the, and the policyholder? So again, developing customized, individualized uh, interventions that will get all, every individual policy to be, behave in a way that is actually better for everyone. Uh, neither yep. the insurer nor the policyholder wants a claim to happen. So it's in everyone's interest to improve the quality of the risk.
0: I can imagine. So looking at all these examples, and by the way, they are, uh, they are yeah, exactly the, the, the examples I'm looking for with my podcast, because that's what I try to promote here, is the extra value you can create mm-hmm. when, you, when you blend technology and people in the right way. So if, if I ask you that question to, to, to see where the most value is created, do you see that the majority of your solutions is really in, is in automating things? Or is it more about augmenting people so that you created that human-machine combination?
1: Yeah, no, so the, the the automation, I'm not a big fan of the automation, to be honest. So what I mean by that is, I mean, so I mean, let's put it this way. Where, where something can be automated by computers, I believe it should, just because the machines don't get tired. They do it more cheaply most of the time. But actually, when we first got involved in AI, one of the... Uh, most popular request that we got was, in fact, actually, could we build human emulators, get an expert and have a a machine emulate the decisions that that person would make? What we're finding is that that's that's a terrible constraint because machines in many cases can actually do far better than the best humans. And so we always ask our clients, why do you want to restrain yourself or constrain yourself to the best that humans can achieve? And what we're finding is that we're able to get (laughs) machines to do things that's far exceed what uh, humans can do. And, it, and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of humble pie to eat because we've been very used to the idea of machines being better at us at physical things, which is why we use cranes and drive cars and other types of machinery. But we, we're now starting to come to terms with the idea the machines can actually beat us at pattern recognition in a way that's not even fair. They far exceed our ability to recognize those patterns. So. I do agree that the that, that the that the human machine hybrid arrangement is is great, but I think that what what we're what we're finding is that we can actually Get machines wherever judgment is called for. In most cases, if we've got data, we can actually get machines to exceed the judgment of humans, which allows us to use them as very potent tools. And I think really what we're, where, 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 where humans are going is not so much in terms of exercising their judgment in terms of day-to-day process, because that's where I think the machines completely beat humans. But where humans become much more useful is where we can get them to be strategic in terms of working out where they would like the machines to be deployed. I think yep. that's where humanity is going.
0: That's exactly also my take on this, and uh, I'm glad that uh, that we're on one line here. It's mm-hmm. it's, uh, and I like your your connection here that you shouldn't constrain yourself by the limits of people. You should think beyond it. Think think big how can you create there's so
1: much better than us i mean you see exactly. articles every day there was an article in our medical research it's a, it's a big story but we, there was an article last week in the guardian in the uk or 2 weeks ago about how dermatologists looking at moles on the skin they, they gave a whole bunch of them to a panel of dermatologists who on average were 86% accurate yeah. in terms of identifying the malignant ones. And an AI algorithm was 95% accurate, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in essence, that's roughly 15% error rate for humans and 5% error rate for machines. That's a third of the error rate. Yeah. but uh, It's a big difference.
0: Yeah, but then there's also research that when, you, uh, when, the, when the two are combined, you get to a 1% error rate. Correct. So it proves again that only machine is not good and only human is not good, but the combination is where the real power is is going to be. Mm -hmm. So if you go to your customers and you go to your projects, what do you do to ensure that you deliver remarkable value? I mean, I think you've pointed out a couple of things already where you challenge your customers, but can you give a couple of those examples whereby the customer was thinking X and you managed to get them like X to the Nth degree? (laughs)
1: yeah uh, i mean so i mean I'll, i can give you more examples i mean the, the the ones that i mentioned the failure to realize the operational operationalize or of a solution is a is a big deal and many many times we clients have had this kind of idea that ai is a silver bullet and they just have to buy the software and their problems will be solved what yeah. people don't realize is that in certain cases the ai has done stuff which There aren't any processes that exist in order to take advantage of it. So as an example, that retention case that I mentioned where the machine came up with an example of who was going to leave in three months' time, and it was a fabulously accurate list of who was going to leave. What do you do with this information? The insurance company at the time didn't actually have any staff that would action this. The process didn't exist before. It just simply didn't exist. So now we have to work with them and tell them, you actually need to carve out or hire some extra staff that will now run with this information, that will develop uh, strategies to try to save these people, that will phone them, that will email them, that will develop scripts, all of these types of things. They just simply didn't exist. (laughs) Another thing, which also in terms of the previous one of working up problems that are worth saving, this was also quite an amazing thing. I was sitting uh, with the COO of one of the major, major world banks in New York uh, last year, and he wanted to work with us and do an AI project. And he's obviously a very smart guy. And so he asked, basically, one of the things that they had was that they had a whole team of people working in India to basically summarize long financial documents. So he asked if we could do that. So I said, look, I could do that. Just tell me again, how much are you paying this team? How much are you paying this team? So I said, the salary bill comes to about $400,000 a month. So I said, look, what you're asking is a relatively difficult project. I'm not not convinced I could do it, but even if I could do it, I I don't see it taking less than six months. And if if I got it right, assuming I got it 100% right right now, they would save you $4.8 million a year, assuming I didn't charge you anything. But then I said, I read your annual report before I walked in over here. And I just looking at that, even if i identified three different problems, which I said, even if I got this half right, that's a billion dollars a year in savings, and i could and I could probably do it by next week. It's a much simpler problem, and so Absolutely. the I think, again, people are attracted to what look like shiny, fancy applications of AI, even though they're not necessarily valuable applications, which is, again, I think that's one of the reasons I think that human automation is not necessarily the best application of AI. I think we've got humans come with a cost, but they're often not the most exciting or valuable opportunity that exists in these businesses. So these are examples of where people didn't have the right idea. There was also, I mean, again, exactly. I don't know if you're interested in medical ones, but uh, I mean, I just had a discussion yesterday where uh, we were trying to do research in tuberculosis TB. And that was an interesting discussion because we basically the we were asked to project the. Uh, project the prevalence of tuberculosis, which is a very major disease in Africa, in a whole bunch of different uh, districts and locales. And so I said, okay, assuming I could do this, and I'm pretty sure I could do this, what would you do with this information? And I would have said, well, we'll deploy more doctors over there or we'll uh, improve testing. Believe it or not, that was not considered something that was within the, the set of possible solutions. So I said, if that's the case, we're just doing this for descriptive reasons. There's no point to this at all. It's only gonna make sense if there's something, if an action that can be taken or will be taken. And so uh, there's a lot. It's, it's an interesting thing that this type of thing, again, it's completely obvious, but that's the type of thing that you have to get wrong a couple of times before you realize that yeah. you can spend a lot of time and money on AI with no value being achieved.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And it's that art of seeing that and being able to, to, uh, to say stop and we are gonna do it a different way. Yeah. So I think, do you have a framework for that? Do you, uh, I mean, how do you spot these things? Or is that indeed your experience of failing
1: more often than others? <laughs> so part of it is the business win, part of, us, part of it is the failure. But we do spend, a, I mean, that is a key part of our process is actually sitting down with the client and we ask these questions specifically. And we, we, we ask them, if we get this right, is it implementable? If it is implementable, will it make a difference? If it does make a difference, how much just gut feel do you think this difference will be worth? Yeah, And both in terms of financial consequences or in the case of health, saving of life or reduction of suffering, these are things that we, we, we and we, and it's not just their gut feel, we'll, we'll often go to significantly to pool their own data just to quantify the extent of the problem. And uh, then also as part of our process before we go live, yeah. we'll often just sample the data, build a small proof of value just to work out how well our model will work and work out how much value the model will add before we got a full scale deployment.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's indeed connecting it to, to, the, to the bigger picture. I think that's, that's a major thing because that example about summarizing that financial document, of course, when you get 4.8 million savings, every company will say, okay, I'm interested. But mm-hmm. when you then can say, okay, if, if I do another project, which is simple to do and I can save you a billion, I mean, it's all about, yeah, how does it resonate compared to the big picture? And that that is a thing that is easily forgotten. So cool. Have you... From all the work that you've been doing and, the, and the, the technology that you've deployed, have you created or seen any surprising byproducts coming from this?
1: I'm not <laughs> really sure. I mean, I mean, the development of all these extra processes has been interesting. Yeah, The facilitation of new products, I think, has been interesting. So being able to... So, for example, what one of the things that we've seen, actually, is a change in the way people think. I think that's actually been quite an interesting byproduct. So, for example, what we've often found is that if you take a look there in businesses one of the problems they have is that different departments are siloed and they often have yeah. th- they always have their own KPIs but these KPIs are often on co- in conflict with each other exactly. so as an ex- as an example you'll have the sales department who are incentivized to make as many sales not yeah. necessarily profitable sales or sticky sales just to make sales and so they'll sell any kind of business not looking at the at how persistent or valuable or uh, risky that particular business is. And the, the, what we found is that we, we, because AI is able to look at a bunch of steps all together, you're able to then get clients to be more sensible about it. So what we do is now when we build, for example, a sales solution for a bank or an insurance company, we don't just say which of the leads will convert it to a sale. We Given the, the cost of selling, the cost of acquisition, we say, let's, let's look at the leads and work out which ones will buy the product, stay on book for a certain amount of time, and not claim. That's really mm-hmm. who you want to sell to. You don't want to make it just a sale for the sake of a sale. You don't want to sell to a policy where the person will leave after a month or two. You don't want to sell a policy where the person is going to claim and be a very bad risk. Yeah. So can we get the machine to cherry pick all of them in one go? And that's actually something that we've that, – that it's not a, so much a byproduct in the sense of a product, but it's a byproduct in terms of thinking. What we're starting to see slowly is that through this, getting the machine to be able to look across different departments – we're getting, we're getting businesses starting to ask the, more of the right questions. How can we originate the right kind of business in one go? Can we recognize those particular people and those particular clients as opposed to just selling for the sake of selling? Can we optimize profitability as opposed to some metric or accounting profit or that yeah. type of thing? So we're starting to see that a bit more. That's, that's cool.
0: That's very valuable. So out of everything that you've seen, what is, what is the example that you're most proud of?
1: Oh, there are a few. Eh? Uh, there really are a few. The, I mean, so the, I mean, sales and retention is nice, but for me personally, I've always had a soft spot for the for the medical field. I actually always wanted to be a doctor, but as I mentioned, I'm quite squeamish and pass out for blood tests. So that was never really an option. But the the medical successes we've had have been really, really nice. So we did a particular project in with ophthalmology. We actually won best paper at the Ophthalmology Conference in South Africa a few years ago for a particular condition where people presented with blurry vision and then the ophthalmologist would recognize that they had an inflammation of their optic nerve. And for this particular inflammation, the doctors didn't know what caused it. And some for these people, some of them get their vision back and some of them uh, go blind but it could take up to 2 years for the condition to settle and uh-huh. the doctors really had no idea which way a particular patient would go and you can obviously imagine a lot of anxiety in not knowing whether you're going to be able to see again and so we collected some data in the public in the public sector we trained uh, trained uh, trained a machine learning algorithm on it and we're now close to 100% accurate, just a snip short of perfectly accurate within an hour. And the only reason it takes us an hour is because uh, the, the algorithm needs the results of two or three blood tests, uh, which take the labs an hour to process. Yeah. But that type of thing excites me because it's an opportunity for just to let people know where they stand. And there are a lot of these applications that we're working on at the moment that, are, that I think will really, really alleviate suffering and improve longevity and save people's yeah. lives. So that for yeah. me is... That's a really big passion of mine, and that's, re- that's part of what gets me quite excited. What we're also starting to do, and what you're also uh, quite, uh, quite excited about, is uh, starting to do work with uh, various governments where we haven't finished a project like this, but we're starting these projects. Where the opportunity to actually help governments govern properly is is uh, is what we're trying to work at. So, as an example, if you take a look at a, a department of health, a health ministry in a country, so they get allocated however many billions of dollars for doing whatever they've got to do, and with that, they've got to decide how many doctors to hire, how many hospitals to build, how many to maintain, what equipment to buy. They've got a whole bunch of levers that they can pull. But how do you know if you're making the right allocation and decisions? So what what we've done now... Is we're working together with one of the departments of health, where we've created an index, a measurement of how well a department is performing. So it would be stuff like overall mortality rates. That's a measure that we're interested in. Child mortality rates. That's, an interest that, that's something we're a metric that we're interested in. Stuff like the average waiting time in a in a government hospital. Emergency room, the, the prevalence of various diseases that are important, malaria and TB and HIV. We come up with two or three hundred different metrics that, uh, and then we weight them, and that allows us to come up with an index of okay. how well the health ministry is performing. And then what we do is we know historically how much data, uh, how much money has been spent on the various levers that they can pull. And then what we do is then we get, can then get the machine to work out the optimal allocation of money to these various things that the government can spend money on. That will move the metric and improve the health of that particular department. So that was an example of a health department where we can do the same thing with energy or education or – social infrastructure we can do all of that so that that's really what we're working on it so these these particular ones are the ones that i'm most excited about because they all have the impact have the potential impact or the real impact of either saving people's lives improving the quality of their life and massive yeah. reduction of suffering to, uh, to millions and millions of people so the bigger the problem the bigger the impact that's what gets me, me excited
0: yeah me too <laughs> get me going yeah so I'm realizing we are already past the half hour here. If you would give an advice to, to a C to to a decision maker, CEO or COO that want to make an exponential, exponential impact to their business, what advice would you give that
1: person? I don't want to suggest, I mean, I'm I'm happy to work in AI, but I don't think that every problem has to be solved with AI. I think there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of great technologies out there and a, a lot of great approaches, but the, in general terms, I think there's an opportunity on the businesses that the that the organizations have to be able to identify the uh, the pain points that they have and figure out the best way to solve them. identify the bottlenecks in their business and focus on that uh, because focusing on areas which aren 't bottlenecks will not actually improve the the value of the business more fundamentally though. I think one really needs to think more about the purpose of the business. And as long as you're adding value to people, you'll do well. So the general ethos that we have is doing well by doing good. If you're adding value to people, then you'll do well. So I think ultimately it boils down to what can you do to serve the public better? And the more value you add to, them, to more people, the better your business will do. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the time people lose sight of that and focus on maintaining the existing business, whether or not exactly. it's serving the public. So I think it's worthwhile just taking a step back at a regular basis and working out what does the public actually need and how can we, and how can we play to that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Wise advice. So what's next for you? What is your greatest aspiration?
1: so we're looking for more problems that's really the issue so we're looking we're looking for uh, so what gets us excited is solving big problems in terms of breadth and depth so we're trying to find the world's biggest problems and figure out how to solve them so and which if it spans territories all the better for us so we're currently working with uh, identifying partners who can find these problems for us we're looking to find these problems ourselves and Doing uh, Kind of doing what, we, what I was suggesting earlier. How can we add the most value? And when we do that, we focus on it and develop a solution for it. So that's really what we're doing. So practically what that boils out to, uh, boils down to is we're currently expanding territorially and we're expanding in terms of industries to industries where we think there's the biggest impact to be made. So, banking and insurance, obviously, big ones. Telcos, a, uh, telcos, a big one, and medicine is a particularly big one. Not just because of the actual human dimension to it, but also just because the medical profession uh, doesn't have that type of quantitative. Machine learning, statistical training that exists in other fields. So mm-hmm. I think there's, it's actually a greener field. It, uh, it's, it's a more untouched area of human endeavor than, say, banking insurance. Banking insurance is riddled with actuaries and financial analysts and quants. Yeah. That doesn't exist in medicine. And so I think there's a great, even bigger opportunity in the medical space for machine learning to make an impact than there is even in the other fields, even though there is a huge opportunity for impact in those other fields too.
0: Yeah, I think the, dif- the difference in impact is, is incredible. I mean, talking about medicine or health, it's all about, you know, people's lives. And in other ind- industries, it's more about corporate impact. But I agree with you. I like that. Find more problems. <laughs> and that's, that in the, right, in the right way of the word, in this case. So if you could ask the audience a question, what would you be your big ask? Bring me yeah. the problems, likely.
1: Yeah, What? not even in your own particular context, but in general, what problem are you aware of that if solved solved. would impact the most people most profoundly?
0: Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thank you very much for this inspiring discussion. And uh, when you started about you got a career ADD, (laughs) (laughs) I can feel that. So yeah, and that's, that's a good thing. So, where can people go if they want to find out more about you, and say hello, and learn learn more about what you're doing as a company?
1: So, in the ordinary course, I would direct you to our website, but our website's terrible. We're not very good at marketing. Uh, but uh, I think well, if, I mean, it's uh, uh,
0: to, to give you my my view on that. I've never seen a website so concise.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you've been two hundred words. I think you've you 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 been. Uh, <laughs> Right. So we've, we're actually, we've never actually marketed and uh, we only put up the website because it's kind of expected that everyone has a website. But I think probably best if anyone has an interest in it, discussing any of these things, uh, drop me an email that you can access off the, off, the, off the website. And more than happy to have a virtual cup of coffee and talk more. I think that's probably the easiest. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Thanks so much for, the, for your time. And uh, it was great talking to you. That's the same on my side. Thanks.
0: And for everybody listening today, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Danny Saxenberg, co-founder and CEO of ML. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other so if you know about stories that are worth sharing please send me a message building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas and that starts with you if you want to have more information read my blogs or obtain information on working with me just visit me on my website valueinspiration.com thank you for tuning in and you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback i'll see you shortly in a new episode